Okay. Brad, let's start with this. Is Amazon a retailer? <laughs> well, if uh, a retailer is a, a company that uh, sells products or services to, to consumers, then yes, Amazon is a retailer and quite a large one. Okay. Um, is Amazon, though they have AWS, is it a web services company? I, sus I suspect the answer to all these questions is going to be yes. Yep. Amazon is a huge enterprise software company. It's, it's uh, pioneered that market uh, and it continues to lead it. Okay, I'm going to keep asking a few more questions, though. Um, is it, um, we know about all the, the warehouses, the distribution centers, fulfillment, the trucks, the airplanes. Is it a logistics company? Magna, five years ago, I would have said no. It is in large part reliant on other logistics uh -huh. companies like FedEx and UPS and the U.S. Post Office. Today, it is a logistics company, and that has happened very quickly. And you can see it when you look out your window or you drive city streets. Amazon vans and trucks are all over the place. Okay, interesting. So there are several sectors that maybe several years ago you would have said, no, Amazon isn't that, but now it is. So, Brad... Let's just cut to the chase. If Amazon is all of these things, retailer, logistics, web services, manufacturer, you, you, you name it. I mean, how, how, do you, how do you define this company? It's a really interesting question, and it is, it is a challenging one, too. It's one of the reasons why Amazon, I think, is so beguiling and somewhat opaque as well. Um, it is almost a conglomerate, but unlike a Berkshire Hathaway or a General Electric, all of the components are you know, interlocked. There are very subtle connections between them. I would say it's a technology company with all these businesses that are very tied together, self-reinforcing, self focused very uh, obsessively on catering to customers and using the same kind of operating principles and internal processes, some very idiosyncratic, uh, and overseen by this very ambitious, very curious, inventive um, internet pioneer named Jeff Bezos. That's a pretty beefy definition for, <laughs> for one company. So I so listen, I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. This is On Point. And folks, you remember how earlier this year I just said, hey, uh, Amazon is such an interesting company. It's so big. We ought to do a huge long series about it. Well, welcome to episode one. We are calling this series, launching today, The Prime Effect. And we're taking a look at how Amazon is changing so much about our lives, how we shop, work, live. And in today's first part, as you've been hearing, we're asking this simple question. What is Amazon? And why is understanding that definition so important? And Brad Stone is with us. He's senior executive editor for Bloomberg Technology, author of a couple of books about Amazon. The most recent one is coming out next month. It's called Amazon Unbound, Jeff Bezos and the Invention of a Global Empire. He's also author of The Everything Store, Jeff Bezos and the Age of Amazon. So, Brad, let me formally say welcome to On Point and thank you for helping us launch this series today. Let me let's, let's so so you have this big definition of what uh, Amazon is. It, it it actually out of necessity seems to be kind of an amorphous definition. But let's let's start back at the beginning in the what early nineties. Can you just give us the sort of Cliff Notes version of the the founding of this company that now has a market cap of $1.23 trillion. 
Sure. Right. 30 years ago, much simpler times, Magna. We, we can define Amazon quite clearly back in 1994. It was an online bookseller. And Jeff Bezos had this idea when he was a vice president at a Wall Street hedge fund. Um, the hedge fund was paying him to think up new ideas for them, but he wanted to be an entrepreneur and he set out on his own. And the idea was on this new thing called the World Wide Web, could you, could you offer unlimited selection? And so he started with books. And then, you know, if you recall, it was the dot-com boom and suddenly venture capitalists and public investors were throwing money at internet companies. Amazon was among the first and Bezos took advantage of it. And, and the company started moving into other product categories, music, toys, DVDs. It almost died during the dot-com bust, uh, but then it it, uh, it it barely barely survived. And over the last 20 years, Bezos just fueled by his curiosity and 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 inventiveness and perhaps uh, ambition and a desire to to dominate has moved into all of these surprising directions including devices like the Kindle and Alexa and 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 enterprise software with AWS and um, you know, pretty soon, drones and satellites and all sorts of things we probably can't even imagine. Yeah. So I'm going to um, say that I don't think perhaps his ambition. I think definitely his ambition. Right. It's. I mean, it's from your no your, doubt your reporting that um, I first learned that he wanted to call the company at the get go relentless. Right. And if you go to Relentless.com, it still takes you to Amazon. So there was something about that word that he thought uh, characterized himself and he wanted uh, to characterize the company. Yeah. So but I think it's a so you said something a second ago that's really important to understand Bezos and Amazon, that from the beginning, he had this observation that in the early days of the Web, there was an opportunity to offer unlimited selection. It, it's quite something to see that. Uh, see that possibility um, back in 1994. And he so from the from the start, though, he didn't just mean unlimited selection in the books category. I mean, the, the goal from the beginning, right, was to expand continuously into new categories, not just categories, but but sectors even. Well, that's a good question. Um, I, I think early on when he was conceiving the idea, uh, he was pretty flexible on what Amazon might sell and books was kind of a strategic choice. But I think if the opportunities of the internet and the and the capital environment weren't available to him, it, Amazon might have stayed a bookseller. I mean, one of the one another of the early URLs he registered was bookmall.com. You know, so he was he did ultimately choose a, a more flexible, versatile name in Amazon. But I don't know when he first went out uh, on the on the Amazon Roadshow, um, he. Uh, he he was only talking about it as a as a bookseller. So that ambition only came later. Okay. Very opportunistic. Okay. Um, quick thing though, I'm just trying to check all the stories because there's almost like this this mythology that has risen up around Bezos and Amazon. He, he was working in New York, right? But then he like goes cross country to Seattle and founds his company there because he wanted to pluck some talent from another major tech company that was uh, based in the Pacific Northwest. Is that right? Well, there, there, are, there were a lot of different reasons why he went to Seattle. One of them was it was a favorable tax environment. At, <laughs> okay. at the time, you only had to collect taxes from the place where your operations were located. So Washington, while a populous state, wasn't a California or New York. But certainly he did know early on the technical talent was going to be important. And you had Microsoft there in Washington and in, in the Seattle area. So that was advantageous, too. 
Okay, so Brad, stand by here for just a second because I now want to bring in Stacy Mitchell. She joins us from Portland, Maine. She's co-director of the Institute for Local Self-Reliance, a national research and advocacy organization that's focused on combating corporate control and uh, works on building uh, equitable communities. And she's written a lot about Amazon, including a cover story that appeared in The Nation a couple of years ago, headlined, Amazon doesn't just want to dominate the market, it wants to become the market. Stacy, welcome to On Point. Hi, it's great to be here. Okay, so first of all, tell us, what do you hear in um, Brad Stone's recounting of the founding of Amazon back in 1994? Is there is there something about that particular time and the the early days of the World Wide Web that are key to understanding what the company has become? Yeah, I mean, you know, I think there's a there's a lot of threads that we can see in, in Amazon today that go all the way back to that that very beginning. As Brad was just noting, you know, from the very start, Jeff Bezos saw gaming government, you know, getting government tax advantages and subsidies as a key part of Amazon's strategy, uh, not only avoiding sales tax for many years, but also uh, picking up economic development subsidies for its warehouses, its new headquarters uh, outside of Washington, D.C. Today, Amazon has picked up nearly $4 billion in subsidies. So that was something that was always part of Amazon's strategy, was recognizing that the policy environment was something that Amazon could game to its own advantage. And I think also uh, that notion of relentless, um, you know, that this was uh, a company that started out in books, but had ambitions to be something much bigger and and much more fundamental than simply a retailer. Mm. Well, so right now, the company is um, garnering a lot of government uh, scrutiny. Um, and not just for its size, because I was looking at the 2020 market cap numbers. It's just one, that's granted just one way of measuring uh, uh, a company's size, but there's still three organizations larger in market cap than Amazon, um, Saudi Aramco, Microsoft still, uh, and Apple. They're all more than a trillion dollars. Um, but but nevertheless, antitrust regulators are, are sort of looking at um, Amazon right now. So is it a monopoly, Stacey? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, Amazon has monopoly power over e-commerce. Um, it is the dominant uh, place for online shopping traffic. More than two-thirds of all Americans, when they start their shopping, uh, instead of going to a search engine, which they did a number of years ago and typing in what they want, now the majority of Americans start right on Amazon. Amazon has essentially become the infrastructure for how we buy and sell goods online. It's become the infrastructure for the cloud. It's become the infrastructure for uh, the new world of voice-operated devices and connection to the internet. Um, and that's really what has gotten the attention of uh, policymakers, uh, members of Congress, and the concerns about, about Amazon mm. in terms of antitrust is that it's the infrastructure that other companies need in order to reach the market. And Amazon only not only supplies that infrastructure, it actually competes with those same companies. And that's the core concern. Brad, we just have about 30 seconds before we have to take a quick break. You, you called it maybe a conglomerate before, but is what Stacey described, is described much more than that. Absolutely. Although it's going to be difficult, I think, for lawmakers and regulators to make an easy case that it's a monopoly because 
these are large markets and Amazon will point out that it's 5% of all retail sales, about half of all online retail spending. So it's not the slam dunk that say Microsoft was when it had a stranglehold over the operating system market in the 90s. Funny you should say that because we're going to talk about that Microsoft antitrust case when we come back. So Brad Stone and Stacey Mitchell stand by. This is episode one of our series on Amazon. We're calling it The Prime Effect. This is On Point. Support for the On Point podcast comes from Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Ditch the busy work and use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash On Point. That's Indeed.com slash On Point. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. The world's clean energy future relies on ancient elements still in the ground. Without mining, there will not be a clean energy transition. But pulling them out of the ground comes at an environmental and human cost. Mining is intrusive, but the results are the building blocks for products that we use every single day. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. Join me for Elements of Energy, Mining for a Green Future. Five consecutive episodes right here. So make sure you're following this podcast. This is On Point. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty, and today it's episode one of our new series on Amazon. We're calling it The Prime Effect. We're taking a look at the way Amazon is changing the way we shop, live, and work. And I should say, we definitely did reach out to Amazon to see if they either had a statement or could provide someone to join us for these conversations. We made a request for Jeff Bezos. They declined our request for uh, Mr. Bezos. They didn't have a statement either, but they pointed us to several different uh, pieces of uh, corporate communications they've put out over the past year, including their 2020 annual report in which Amazon says, quote, We seek to be the Earth's most consumer-centric company. We are guided by four principles, customer customer obsession rather than competitor focus, passion for invention, commitment to operational excellence, and long-term thinking, end quote. Just a tiny snippet of their 2020 annual report. Now, that obsessive focus, as Amazon itself says, is what's led it to be, for example, the largest retailer in the world right now. But of course, as we've been discussing with Brad Stone and Stacey Mitchell, it's not just a retailer. It is so much more. And because of that, Amazon is indeed facing government scrutiny into whether the company's use of its size and power might violate antitrust laws. Now, this isn't the first time the government has asked such questions of a technology company. In fact, as Brad hinted, one of the most famous antitrust cases in U.S. history involved another tech company headquartered a mere 15 miles from Seattle. That's Redmond, Washington-based Microsoft. So, Stacy and Brad, I just wonder if you could listen along with me, because we recently spoke with the litigator the government brought in back in the 1990s on the Microsoft case, And his name is... David Boies. Now 80 years old, David Boies is one of the most famous lawyers in the United States. In 2000, he represented then-Vice President Al Gore in the Supreme Court case that decided the presidential election. Mr. Boies, we'll hear from you. 
Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice. Uh, may it please the court. Let me begin by... In 2010, he won a case that overturned the ban on gay marriage in California. I think the most remarkable thing that happened in there was that there was no attempt to defend the ban on gay and lesbian marriage. There was no... And more recently, he's represented controversial clients such as Harvey Weinstein. Back in 1997, Boys was already a sought-after litigator. He had just started his own firm when he got a call from then-Assistant Attorney General Joel Klein. This was very unusual because the Department of Justice hardly ever retains private counsel to uh, handle their cases. Klein wanted to talk about Microsoft. He explained that they were considering possible monopolization case against Microsoft. And he realized that it would be the largest antitrust case that the government had undertaken since the IBM case many decades ago. And I had represented IBM in that case. And he indicated that he wanted to be sure that no private lawyer did to the government what I had done to the government representing IBM. Boys is talking about an antitrust case against IBM that began in 1969. And here's what Boys did to the government. 13 years, 66 million pages of documents, 974 witnesses, and 724 trial days later, the government lost. Not an experience the Justice Department wanted to go through again with yet another tech company. And not just any tech company. In 1997... Microsoft was, at that point, I think the largest company in terms of market capitalization in the world. Today, Microsoft makes the internet easy. Today, it's the Bill Gates was the richest man in the world. Uh, Microsoft was one of, if not the most admired companies. MSN brings the internet to life right on your Windows 95 based PC. And Bill Gates was, if not the most, uh, certainly one of the most admired business executives. The Internet isn't standing still. I mean, people say, well, okay, aren't you done adopting the Internet? Well, the Internet isn't done changing, and we're, we're part of the co- one of the companies that's pushing that forward. It was a company that uh, I think had changed uh, the way we operated, uh, the way we thought, both in our personal lives and in our business lives. So it was a company of, of great interest, great importance to the country, to society. After all, Microsoft's OS was on most personal computers around the world. It was pretty clear to us that Microsoft had monopoly power. But Boyes says it was less clear if Microsoft had engaged in anti-competitive practices in order to maintain that monopoly. So let's recall, in 1997, The web is still a pretty new place. You heard Bill Gates say earlier that, quote, the internet isn't standing still. Well, Microsoft wasn't either. It was building for the future. But the government alleged that Microsoft was building walls. Modifications to Windows and deals with computer manufacturers and developers that would effectively block the operation of upstart browsers, like Netscape, on most of the world's computers. For example, They would enter into arrangements with Apple to get Apple uh, not to use the Netscape browser. And that, the government alleged, was an illegal use of Microsoft's monopoly power. Now, the DOJ 
is trying to say that when we put new features into Windows, uh, that maybe we shouldn't be allowed to do that. That is Bill Gates in a 1997 interview with journalist Chris Long. From the get-go, Gates rejected the government's argument and instead claimed the federal government was interfering with Microsoft's existential, market-driven need to innovate. The irony of that is, is pretty strong, and it's a pretty fundamental principle for us to be able to add new things into Windows because, you know, the operating system, what people expect of it, is always changing. They'll expect speech in the future. They'll expect vision in the future. And so we're just at the beginning of what we need to do there. So we're being forced to say, although we're successful, we're allowed to innovate. The Justice Department was undeterred. In fact, the government had already taken action against Microsoft in previous years. In 1995, a court issued a consent decree forbidding Microsoft from using its operating system dominance to squelch competition. Later that same year, the Justice Department alleged that Microsoft violated that agreement and sought to impose a million-dollar-a-day fine on the company. The legal wrangling went on for another year, all the way up to May 18, 1998. Today, we are taking another step to keep our marketplace competitive. Attorney General Janet Reno announced that the government was taking the world's largest company to court. The Internet is already revolutionizing communication, commerce, and the flow of information around the world. No firm should be permitted to use its monopoly power to keep out competitors or to spurn innovations. Boyes says he hoped to settle. Gates didn't see it that way, saying in 1998, Boyes made it clear in the negotiations leading up to the case he's really just out to destroy Microsoft. No, no, I wasn't. I had at the time and and continue to have considerable admiration for Microsoft and for Bill Gates. It was a misunderstanding of what the antitrust laws are about to say that when you are prosecuted for an antitrust violation, the lawyer for the government is out to destroy you. Every company has got to play by the rules, no matter how successful you are. The trial began in Washington on October 19, 1998. Judge Thomas Penfield Jackson presided. Somebody who, in one of our very first pretrial conferences, you know, said to me that I should understand that he did not believe that it was a judge's role to second-guess how technology companies designed their products. Nevertheless, November 5, 1999, Judge Jackson issued a ruling that surprised the world. His decision that Microsoft had violated the antitrust laws was a very important decision, not only for Microsoft and the consumers, but for the progress of the antitrust laws and for the analysis as to whether the antitrust laws really could and should apply to individual uh, technology companies, to the high-tech industry. The second decision, which was to order a breakup of Microsoft, was in some senses even bolder. The breakup of Microsoft never happened, in part because administrations changed in 2000. Boys was involved with that one too, albeit on the losing side, as Al Gore's counsel in Bush v. Gore. So what are the lessons learned from the Microsoft case, the last big monopoly case won by the federal government? Does David Boyes think that existing antitrust regulations are suitable in the age of Amazon? First, I ought to say that I'm really not in a position really to talk about Amazon uh, specifically. 
the, uh, my firm uh, has represented uh, Amazon. <laughs> of course. With a track record like Boys has, no surprise there. But anyway... In addition to that, these cases are very fact-specific. Uh, you can't look at a company and say, because they're big, they're a antitrust violator. You've got to look at how do they get to be big? How do they keep being big? What are they doing to prevent other people from competing with them? And those are fact-specific. So even if I, my firm had not represented Amazon, I would be reluctant to sort of give you much of, a, uh, much of an answer to that. That is the famed attorney, David Boyes. So Stacy Mitchell, Boyes is talking about fact-specific reasons to uh, think about um, how antitrust regulation might apply to Amazon. So give me a, a few more of the facts as you see them that might make Amazon a worthy target for antitrust regulators. I think in the case of a, the Microsoft case, you know, what you essentially had, and I think this speaks very much to what we're facing now, you had a company that was using its power in one area over the operating system in order to dominate the future, in order to dominate the web and everything that would come after that. And you can really hear that in the words of Bill Gates when he's talking about, you know, all the things, he really wants Microsoft to be at the center of everything. And that's very much what we see with Amazon today. This is a company that has come to dominate online shopping and from that vantage point is systematically using that market power to dominate everything else around it. Um, so we see Amazon using its power over third-party sellers to build the sellers on its marketplace to build a massive logistics operation. Amazon is now shipping so many packages, not only its own, but those of other companies, that it's beginning to rival UPS and the Postal Service. Um, we see Amazon using its power to surveil all of those companies that, that need to sell on its marketplace in order to reach customers online, surveilling them, uh, hoovering up their data, and using that to make its own products that it then sets up to compete directly against theirs. Um, we see Amazon moving into a whole new world of how we connect to the internet through voice and sort of smart homes and smart offices. Amazon has, through acquisitions uh, and through its power uh, to, to really dominate the sale of, uh, of, of internet-connected devices, uh, like uh, home speakers and then all the things that are being connected, dishwashers, televisions, and so on, to become the dominant voice provider with over 70% of the market. Um, so this, again, is, is very much similar to that, that thing that we face with Microsoft, where you power in one area, Amazon wants to be at the center of everything. And I mm -hmm. think that that's deeply concerning. Um, I think the case that you build around that is both a case that can come through the courts, but it is also something that we may see Congress take up directly. And indeed, Congress has done this in the past where they have recognized that when a company provides essential infrastructure, that that is inherently uh, problematic if it's competing with this, the companies that rely on that infrastructure. And so we may actually see that breakup come through legislation from Congress. Okay, so just briefly, though, so you're saying that that sort of particular view of uh, of what might define monopolistic behavior or abuse of monopolistic power in terms of in essential infrastructure isn't quite in um, antitrust regulation right now? 
You could get to a breakup through a court case, I think, but it would be a longer road. Um, you know, certainly, okay. yeah, in certain, you know, and and more sort of uncertain. Um, it is a path, and and I think I think we are definitely going to see uh, antitrust cases brought against Amazon in the coming months and years for mm-hmm. sure. But it could also happen uh, through through Congress, and I think that's a path that we haven't used in many decades, and so people are less familiar with it. But it is also a way that. Uh, we can structure markets. Okay. So, Brad Stone, let me turn back to you here because there's a lot going on um, at the same time. First of all, um, Stacey Mitchell pointed out a lot of areas in which Amazon um, enters, grows very quickly, becomes either um, an, a, a heavy competitor or a dominant uh, force in in those sectors. Now that is a little bit or quite quite different than the Microsoft case uh, that we that we just explored because Microsoft, as noted at the time, was on ninety five percent of the world's personal computers. It had this massive power uh, already in terms of operating systems, and it was using that power. Funnily enough, David Boyes also told us that at the beginning when he first took on the case uh, for the government, even the Justice Department didn't wasn't quite sure if they had a case, uh, even given that 95 percent number. They weren't sure if they could uh, sell a, a judge on the antitrust argument, but they did. But my, my question to you, Brad, is, is Amazon would say, well, we're not abusing our power or our size because we're all the markets that we enter are already, you know, they have big players like UPS. There's heavy competition going on. So what what are we doing that's monopolistic? I think they will say that. <laughs> I think Stacey's right. Uh, there will be more antitrust scrutiny of Amazon in, in the years ahead. Um, yeah, I think Am- I, the Microsoft case is, is enormously useful, right? It took a decade. Microsoft settled. It's now a larger company than Amazon. Um, Amazon has the example of Microsoft as well. Um, you know, as, as the as the as the clip you played just showed, you know, Microsoft was kind of flagrant, right? They talked about e- extinguishing and smothering Netscape back in the day. You know, Bill Gates went in, in those depositions and was enormously combative, arguing over words like we. Um, Amazon leads with its chin in a lot of these discussions. Um, it, it talks about uh, the necessity for regulation. Um, it can also point quite reasonably to the fact that these are competitive markets, Um you know, you look at a company like Shopify, um, grown almost out of nowhere to become a $150 billion company, uh, is in the business of bringing brands directly to the internet. Um, you know, companies like Target and Walmart are doing quite well. So it's a, it's a tough case. There are a lot of ways in which Amazon privileges its own services and kind of locks companies in. But some of these are, are common practices in retail. So it's a lot for the government to swallow. Well, Brad Stone and Stacey Mitchell, hang on here for just a second. This is part one or episode one of our series about Amazon. We're calling it The Prime Effect. We'll have more when we come back. This is On Point. Did you kill Marlene Johnson? I think you're one of the first people to have actually asked. From WBUR and ZSP Media, this is Beyond All Repair, a new podcast about an unsolved murder that will leave you questioning everything. Somebody should be in jail for murdering my sister. A woman who's never been believed. 
as long as they think I have done this, then they're not looking for who actually did this. And that's what makes it a cold case. No, it's a botched case. And a search for the truth, once and for all. Wow, it just gets more interesting. Beyond All Repair. Listen and follow wherever you get your podcasts. Be careful. You're digging in a place that's been very peaceful for a while. Do it anyway. Dig. This is On Point. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. This is Nelly Anamalai from Nashua in New Hampshire. Amazon is something I do my best to avoid using. This is Betsy Carroll from Knox, Maine. Amazon is the prime example of all that is wrong with the world. Hi, this is Wayne Simmons from Ellsworth, Maine. Amazon is the last resort. Thanks. Hi, this is Andrea Learned in Seattle. Amazon is primed, pun intended, to step into global transportation emissions reduction leadership by prioritizing e-cargo bikes and cycle logistics for urban last mile delivery. Thanks. Aloha, this is Richard Schnecker from Wahiawa, Hawaii. Finishing a sentence of the day, Amazon is a monopoly. Aloha. Just a couple of the many voicemails we got from listeners when we asked them to fill in the blank. Amazon is. And you heard what some of them had to say. We've got some positive ones, too, which we'll hear in just a minute. But I'm joined today in episode one of our series on Amazon by Stacey Mitchell. She's co-director of the Institute for Local Self-Reliance. And Brad Stone is also with us. He's senior executive editor for Bloomberg Technology. You see, Brad, we're coming back to the what is Amazon question here. But but let me not to put both of you in a reductive mindset here, but I just want to ask you, that last listener you heard who said Amazon is a monopoly. I think uh, that is an increasingly popular um, view of the company, right? Because, But is that true? I mean, is Amazon a monopoly? Would you say that, Brad? It's really all about how you define the market. Um, if you look at book sales. Um, if you look at ebook sales, it certainly is. If you look at book sales, it's certainly a dominant force. If you're looking at e-commerce, perhaps a little less so, about 50% of the market. If you're looking at enterprise software, maybe 30% of the market. Um, and if you're looking at overall retail, it's a little minnow in a giant ocean. And it's really all about how you how you create the market definitions. Okay. So, and so Stacey, then how would you define if Amazon is a monopoly or not? You know, I think one way to understand monopoly power is to think about, you know, what what it is that that other companies have to face in the marketplace. You know, I think a definition of monopoly power is really when you have the ability and the position to be able to dictate terms to dictate how other companies behave. And in the case of online commerce, uh, Amazon really has that monopoly power. You know, if you make or sell anything and you want to reach customers online, when you've got two thirds of customers starting their search on Amazon, you have two choices. You can either not sell there and you are limited to trying to find uh, the third of people who are still on search engines 
or you have to sell on Amazon. And if you sell on Amazon, suddenly you're subject to having to pay their fees, to live by their rules, um, to allowing them to see your data and information and, and use it against you. I mean, a good example of this is the company PopSockets. They're a, a maker of iPhone accessories and they, they've testified before Congress about, about Amazon's market power. And you know, from their vantage point, you can't not sell on Amazon. It's just not a possibility the way the way Amazon dominates the market. They're a gatekeeper and you got to go through that gate. But then that means you're subject to all of these things. PopSockets found that there were tons of counterfeits uh, of its product on Amazon and said to Congress, you know, Amazon told us we can clean up those counterfeits. We can get rid of them. Um, but we need you to spend $2 million uh, on advertising and marketing on our site, uh, according to PopSockets. So that's what monopoly power is. It's really the ability to bully other companies and get them to do your bidding. And we have seen that over and over and over again with Amazon. Mm. Well, it seems as if uh, the general public is starting to have a different view um, of the company. It's kind of a love-hate relationship, if I can put it that way, because a Data for Progress poll in September found that 65% of likely voters then agreed that the economic power of Amazon uh, and other big tech companies was a problem. But of course, Amazon comes back and says, I mean, is it really a problem? Look, they're focused on a different number. For example, here's one of them, 147 million Prime members in the United States. So, I mean, Brad, Amazon just can continue to turn to the evidence in the number that they're providing us a service that millions, tens of hundreds of millions of people want. That's true. It's actually even higher. Jeff Bezos just in a shareholder letter talked about 200 million prime members. I, I think it, it it just points to a little contradiction in, in American life, right? We we seem very skeptical of these large companies. You know, Walmart went through it in the 90s. It's certainly Amazon's time now. Um, we distrust them. We love the 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 personal nature, the aesthetic value of our of our main streets and our, our local stores, our independent bookstores. And at the same time, if it's a lower price, if it's better selection, if it's rapid delivery, we flock to Amazon. I mean, the, the, the sales of the company went up 40% last year. You know, the pandemic was like an injection of steroids for Amazon. And, you know, people might be publicly professing their, their concern about Amazon, their skepticism, and then they're privately pressing the buy button. And, um, you know, and, and so it's, 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 you know, it's an interesting, it's an interesting contradiction. I, I suspect that Amazon is really not the first company to embody it. Mm. And Stacey, talk more about this, because this, this gets us into what I think has been a major change just in the, the conception of Americans about themselves, say, in the past, you know, 40 years in terms of being prime, first thought, thinking of themselves as citizens, but then maybe now nowadays or for, for quite some time, we've just referred to ourselves as consumers over citizens. I mean, is this a reflection of that transformation? That's right. And that's part of how antitrust policy has really gone wrong is beginning in the 80s. You know, we really reduced concerns about power, about concentration, about uh, whether we had a competitive market that was open to everyone. We really set all of those things aside and we we made antitrust solely focused on uh, maximizing efficiency uh, and, and in theory, lowering consumer prices. And we've really lost our way as a result. We've had massive consolidation across the economy. 
you know, just to, to go back here, I don't think this is on consumers to solve this problem. I think it's entirely, I don't think there's a contradiction at all in the polling uh, and the fact that people shop online. I think people absolutely love e-commerce and love having things delivered to their front door. That's technological innovation in the same way that people loved the railroads or loved, you know, all of the other technological innovations that we've had over the years. But there's a difference between that, the technology, and having a single company so dominate that technology that no one else is is allowed to compete fairly uh, on it. Uh, my local bookstores, my local toy stores, uh, they can sell online. They're perfectly capable of, of operating a brick and mortar business and uh, being able to, to sell online if we had an open market, if we had fair rules uh, that didn't allow a single company to dominate. And I think really that's what you're seeing in that polling data is that people want, yes, they want Amazon's power to be ad addressed, uh, which is not saying no to e-commerce, but saying uh, yes to, to a vibrant and open market. Wow. You know, I was just thinking this morning how um, another sort of closer to home example is that my local internet provider, I do not love them, <laughs> but I don't have a choice and I use them every day. So, I mean, I think you're exactly right that there isn't a contradiction. It's just a fact of of modern life, how these these, um, uh, you know, the power of these these companies and organizations grow Uh but what do we do about it? I mean, it's that I think that's that's the big question here um, for for lawmakers and for regulators and for the companies themselves. So I just want to play um, a clip of Bill Gates again because, as we've talked about in the previous segment, obviously Microsoft no stranger to government regulation and scrutiny. And in October, so very recently, he was asked by CNBC what advice he has for big tech CEOs today. Well, I think whenever you get to be a super valuable company, you know, affecting the way people communicate and even, you know, political discourse being mediated through your system and, you know, higher percentage of commerce uh, uh, through your system, you go, you're going to expect a lot of government attention. I was naive at Microsoft and didn't realize uh, that our success would lead to government attention. And so I, you know, I made some mistakes Brad, I mean, with all due respect to Mr. Gates, it, it astonishes me to think that he believes he was naive. Um, but nevertheless, what lessons has Amazon learned specifically? I mean, I think they, they actually didn't maybe they they suffered from the same naivete for quite some time and didn't take uh, uh, the possibility of government scrutiny seriously until relatively recently. Yeah, I don't know. Um, you know, the the one lesson, I mean, it's so funny to hear Bill Gates talk with such modesty about the mistakes he made back then when he was such a pugnacious <laughs> CEO. Um, but in, in my in my book, I write about David Sapolsky, the, the general counsel for Amazon. Uh, he's a former prosecutor. Uh, he, he has gone to school on the Microsoft case and he has a whiteboard in his office where he has a list of all of all of the words that he wants Amazon executives and employees to avoid. Words like platform, um, things that can suggest to lawmakers when they do start reviewing, and they already have internal correspondence at Amazon, that it doesn't set off alarm bells. And I think this is it's really the epitome of what Amazon has taken away from the Microsoft case that, you know, you have to be modest in your internal and external communication. You, you avoid words like dominate and platform. Um, and when you go do talk to Congress, you lead with your chin and and you know, present an air of modesty. 
it's not something that Microsoft did in the 90s. And, you know, I think that not just Amazon, but all tech companies kind of have have that lesson um, and, um, you know, and, and have like, you know, rather large presences in Washington, D.C., uh, catering to these issues as a result. Microsoft was a very isolated company when uh, when Washington yeah. started knocking on its door. I mean, I will forever be in the camp of it doesn't matter what they say. Look at what they do. Right. And one of the things that Amazon's been doing is I think they 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 jacked up their amount of political contributions to the highest ever in 2020. Terrific piece in the Seattle Times recently points out that Quote, the pace of Amazon's hires uh, accelerated as federal scrutiny of business practices intensified. Uh, when we talk about hire, we're talking about litigators. The company made five high-profile hires with a combined 44 years of experience at the DOJ and FTC previously. And they just did that in a four-month period last year. So they are de- definitely internally uh, building their litigation muscle. So Stacy Mitchell... Last couple of questions for you. Can you tell us more specifically what you think might be coming later this year from the government vis-a-vis Amazon? Well, I think you're absolutely right about, you know, looking at what Amazon is doing uh, and what that tells us about, you know, what it sees. And not only has Amazon increased its lobbying spending and hired all these former uh, government uh, antitrust uh, people, but, you know, just look at what's happening to, to Washington, D.C. itself. I mean, Amazon is locating its second headquarters there. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, after this nationwide contest that people may remember, you know, ultimately in, in somewhat some you know, would would say a foregone conclusion, um, you know, chose to locate in the greater D.C. area. I mean, they are bringing 25,000 employees uh, to Washington, D.C. It's a kind of presence and a kind of soft power that I think is, and and soft influence that I think is hard to overstate. I think Jeff Bezos doesn't see anybody on the horizon who is a potential competitor to Amazon. Uh, I think the only thing that he sees that could threaten his company's continuing domination is the potential of a democratic government to actually intervene in that power. And I think that's why their second headquarters is going to be in DC. I think that's why he bought the largest private mansion in the city uh, before COVID held his first uh, lavish event uh, here with, you know, quite a a list of uh, leading political figures on both the left and the right, leading journalists as well uh, at that event. Um, So so Jeff Bezos is very much focused uh, on Washington, DC. In terms of what we're going to see from a elected officials, you know, we, uh, in the House, the antitrust subcommittee uh, last fall completed a 15-month investigation into the four big tech firms, uh, including Amazon, and released its report. Uh, That report found that Amazon has monopoly power and called for a number of changes to antitrust policy, also called for um, legislation that would break up the dominant tech firms along business lines uh, and apply what's known as non-discrimination rules, essentially saying you are infrastructure, therefore you have to treat all comers equitably. The same thing we did with the railroads and other forms Mm. of infrastructure in the past. So I suspect that we're going to see legislation in the coming months to do exactly that. Well, Stacey Mitchell, co-director for the Institute of Local Self-Reliance and author of several influential reports and articles about Amazon, including a cover story that appeared in The Nation, headlined, Amazon doesn't just want to dominate the market, it wants to become the market. Stacey, thank you so much for joining us today. 
Thank you. Great to be with you. All right, Brad, I'm going to keep you with us in the last two minutes of episode one of our The Prime Effect uh, series, because next time in our series, we're going to be focusing on one guy. Hi there. Who are you? I'm Jeff Bezos. And what, are your, what is your claim to fame? <laughs> I'm the founder of Amazon.com. Yes, of course, we're going to be talking specifically about Jeff Bezos, about his life, his ambitions, and how that relentless pursuit of universality has really spurred all the innovation that we've been talking about at Amazon. Now, earlier, we heard a lot of negative feedback from listeners about what Amazon is. We had some positive feedback, too. Here's On Point listener Gary Warner. Amazon is a marvel of convenient, efficient, and brilliant distribution that is unfairly maligned, scapegoated, and hypocritically hated by millions of people while those same people use the company's services. Now, Brad, you're author of The Everything Store. So in the last minute that we have here, give us a preview. What do we need to understand about Jeff Bezos in in order to understand Amazon? Mm, Right. Well, imagine going to work with someone who has a different idea every day, who insists that everything be perfect, uh, be implemented very quickly, and who has bottomless resources to do everything. I mean, that person sounds exhausting to work for. I can tell you he's exhausting to cover and to write about. Uh, Even as a customer, it's kind of tiring when you just think about the steady stream of new things. So everything from mundane things, Bezos wants Amazon to try new grocery products to ambitious technologies like artificial intelligence. He wants to be there. He's very curious. He's inventive. He's incredibly, as we've talked about, ambitious. Well, Brad's going to join us next month for episode two of our series on Amazon, where we talk about Jeff Bezos and learn everything we can about him. Brad is senior executive editor at Bloomberg and author of The Everything Store and the forthcoming Amazon Unbound. Thank you so much for being with us, Brad. Thank you. And folks, this is episode one again of our series, The Prime Effect. Stay tuned for more. And always leave us a a message on Facebook or Twitter at On Point Radio and let us know what you want to know about Amazon. This is On Point.